that's just it's the minds and the hearts of of Africans, particularly young Africans, that have just so much, you know, so many great ideas and just need, you know, to unlock new opportunities or need investment to move to the next level. Hello, this is Sarika Bunsel with Driving Change. Welcome to Made in Africa, our conversation series with African visionaries whose work impacts the public good. We were interested in learning how leaders across the continent got to where they are today, the inflection points along their journeys, their inspirations, how they pushed through moments of self-doubt, and how they came out the other side. Today, I'm speaking with Yawa Hansen Kwao. Yawa is the executive director of Emerging Public Leaders, which seeks to build a pan-African network of young leaders in public service. She is also a serving member of the board of directors at Ashesi University College, as well as the founder of the Leading Ladies Network which supports female entrepreneurs in Ghana. Yawa has also served for three years on the foundation board of the World Economic Forum's Global Shaper Community. She's worked as a leadership consultant to UN Women, and in 2016, she was awarded an Eisenhower Fellowship in honor of her pioneering work nurturing emerging women leaders. Yawa and I talk about her journey, both professional and personal, and how her experiences have helped shape the vision she has for African governance and leadership. She and her family were forced to flee Ghana when she was a child in the early 1980s, and so she grew up in Togo as well as in the United States. She returned to Ghana as a teenager, and she decided to take a bet on a new university, Ashesi, so she could be part of Ghana's future. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Yawa. It's so nice to be chatting with you today. It's so nice to be here. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I hope you are too. Yeah, it's a beautiful day here in Nairobi, so I can't complain. So as you know, I love to chat with people about their journeys, how they got to where they are today, their inspirations, and all of the kinds of ups and downs and the moments that have made you who you are. So um, I am just so inspired by your story and who you are. So I'm really excited to be digging in a little bit more to, to what makes Yawa tick. I love to start by learning about people's childhoods. Uh, I understand that you left Ghana at a young age with your family after a political coup. What was that like for you? Well, my father was a politician at the time of the military coup that happened in Ghana. And, um, you know, it was unsafe for us to remain in the country. So many of my father's contemporaries were killed or um, had horrible things happen to them and their families. So we were quite lucky to have had the opportunity to leave um, we fled first to Togo, uh, which is a neighboring country to Ghana, and then eventually we were relocated to the U.S. So we lived in Fresno, California, and we lived later in Alabama um, before returning to Ghana in 1996. Um, I will be honest, I don't remember too much of what it was like, but from the stories of my parents... It was a tough time. And as an adult and looking back, reading some of the history books and having the opportunity to interact with other families that were affected by this dark chapter of Ghana's history, I feel incredibly lucky to be alive, (laughs) to be here. Um, And my parents felt incredibly blessed that none of us lost our lives. Um, It was a tough period economically, of course, but we were one of the lucky few who were able to escape um, geographically, at least. Right. That's incredible. And I mean, I'm sure that shaped who you've become today as well. 
I do think my experience living abroad did shape me in two distinct ways. I think, firstly, it gave me a firsthand view into why it is important um, to, to work to improve governance. You know, our family was forced to leave our country, not really by choice, but because of the lack of political stability. And countless many other Africans leave their countries in droves each year because of the dissatisfaction they feel with their governments. So I think, you know, that really inspires the work I do today with emerging public leaders helping to create a pipeline of competent and ethical talent for the governance sector. And then secondly, I think, you know, having had a multicultural childhood um, makes me a little more tuned in to the globe in a nuanced way. Um, And I think it helps me foster understanding between people of different cultures. When you returned to Ghana, what was the thinking there? You know, you could have continued on and lived and stayed in the U.S., but what did you see as your future in Ghana? I'll be honest, I didn't want to come back to Ghana. (laughs) At the time, you know, we were quite the Americanized, you know, teenagers. Um, I am child number two of six, and I was in my early teens at the time. And I have to credit my parents for making this bold choice. They wanted us to not forget that we came from a continent that is worth remembering, a continent that's worth being involved in determining the future of. And for us at the time, it was difficult to leave our friends, to leave our schools, and to come back to a country that was finding its way in this, you know, democratic experience. Um, And I remember the first years were hard, partly because we had to relearn our culture. When we lived in the U.S., for example, we transitioned into becoming an English-speaking family simply to help us with school. Um, So we spoke very little English when we went to the U.S. And we came back to Ghana speaking very little of our mother tongue. So readjusting to, to our culture, which now felt so foreign to us, was hard, readjusting to a school system that we never really engaged with much because we left when I was so young, Um, and then trying to find, you know, a new sense of identity um, as, as a Ghanaian was hard. But now I'm older and wiser and can't imagine living anywhere else or being from anywhere else. And I think, you know, that journey has been such such a blessing because I think, you know, I've grown um, a deeper appreciation for this continent and its potential. And I think the work that I do today really is helping me kind of live out the purpose that I feel I have in life um, to, to just really change the lens through which people see the continent of Africa. So after you came back, you're a teenager, and then you ended up attending Ashasi University, which was a relatively new liberal arts university in Ghana at the time. And I believe you were in their second class ever. I'd love to know what drew you to go to Ashasi in particular. That's right. I was part of the second batch of students that uh, took a bet on a chassis. I say took a bet because in those days, you know, there was no alumni community to talk to and get a sense for what the experience was like. We were very much 
um, the pioneers in, in kind of the experience. But I was drawn to a chassis because of its vision. Um, the vision of a chassis is really to nurture a new generation of ethical and entrepreneurial leaders for Africa. And I remember I was about to graduate from high school and thinking, you know, what am I doing with my life? My older brother had by this time returned to the U.S. for college, and I was quite frankly on the pathway to do the same. Um, then I see these newspaper ads for a new university called Ashesi, and they asked a simple question in the ad, which said, do you believe in excellence at Ashesi? We do. And I was intrigued. I remember a friend of mine from class um, joined me and we took a tour and it was a small campus, just one building. It was a rented house out of a residential neighborhood. Um, but it was a big vision that I felt so connected to because by this time I'm graduating from high school, really feeling better connected to Ghana and wanting to unpack for myself. Like, what would I do? What would I be? And how will I influence this country and the continent in general? I knew and felt in, innately that my future was tied to, to Ghana in some way or to Africa. And I felt somewhat, you know, challenged by the idea of leaving again to go you know, do my undergraduate. So, you know, after the visit to campus, I was sold. And I had to now sell the idea to my family because at the time, my father, you know, had just been diagnosed with cancer and was really um, in the waning days of his life and was really concerned that I was making a brash decision. Um, he asked the question, would the school still be here in five years? And, you know, I, I, I just felt really committed. And I'm glad that, you know, I, I said yes to the experience. And I think, you know, being part of that community really solidified my views on Africa, really helped me articulate kind of my leadership pathway. Um, and, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. I'm part of the alumni community now. Um, I'm also a serving member of the Chessie Board of Directors. And I'm really thankful um, that I took the bet. Chessie is doing a fantastic job and really living up to its mission. And I'm really glad to be an example of um, the, the, the impact that Ashesi is making in Africa. You never know those moments that are going to help define what your life is going to become. And it sounds like choosing to go to Ashesi was one of them for you. Absolutely. Uh, not only did I get my degree there, I met my husband there. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's a gift that, that gave me more than just an education. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. Uh, and, I, and speaking of your leadership, uh, in 2009, you launched the Leading Ladies Network. Uh, I'm curious to know what your vision was for it as, as you were launching it. You know, I can't really talk about leading ladies without talking about one peculiar Ashesi experience, which was while I, I was getting my undergraduate degree at Ashesi University, in my final year, I decided to run for president of our student government association. I ran, I won, and it turned out it was the first time in the history of Ghana that a woman 
had been elected president of a university-level student government association. It was reported in the news. I got featured. And it was exciting for a few moments. But then the reality dawned on me that actually, you know, that's a little sad. So I had always been interested in women's issues, but mostly from the angle of women's health. I was really heavily involved in HIV AIDS peer education because in many ways HIV was warping into a women's disease. But after that experience, I decided to turn my attention towards the issues around women in leadership, particularly what what are the barriers? What was contributing to the underrepresentation of women in political leadership, even at a university student government level. So that's where the spirit um, of, of leading ladies started from. I wanted to create a network um, that would really support the rise of women into political and business leadership. And we started off in those early days in 2009, really supporting young women who are interested in running for student politics and, you know, giving them the information and training that they needed. And really, more importantly, just providing a safe space and a network where we can talk frankly about some of the barriers. Um, I think our continent is one in which tradition to a large extent determines the path that most women's lives take. And um, there really is a very pervasive and somewhat subconscious belief that women cannot or should not lead. So, you know, using the experience I'd garnered through my campaigning experience and coupling that with the shared experiences of other women who were ahead of us, we provided you know, mostly just networking and mentoring and the opportunity to access training. Um, Over the years, Leading Ladies has grown into a a wider network of women at different levels. Those women in those early days have now transitioned into the world of work. And so a lot of training around employability, entrepreneurship, business skills. Um, And it's just such a wide ecosystem now. Um, And I'm really glad to to have founded it and have had the opportunity to be part of the unfolding success stories of so many women leaders. Hmm. And how is the, how would you say it's grown over time, the whole network, and where do you see it today fitting into Ghana more generally? Well, the membership now is a little over 11,000 and it spreads over five African countries. And I'm really excited by that. Um, In 2017, I left the day-to-day running of it. And so there's a team that's helping to keep the flame alive and to nurture the work that we started, particularly the mentoring work with young girls in school systems, as well as some of the training work with women at different transition points in their careers. As we think about the future, I mean, I want to see leading ladies continue to support women where where they are and to, you know, kind of deepen the work uh, that the organization does in supporting women's rise into public leadership. I want to see more and more um, interventions in that specific space. That's amazing. And... I know that you have the Leading Ladies Network, but then also your day job is with Emerging Public Leaders. Could you just speak about your work there? Emerging Public Leadization, doing such important work. Our vision really is to help 
support the socioeconomic development of Africa by strengthening the talent pool for public sector jobs. We believe that if we create a, a opportunities for young people to uh, get trained and mentored and coached and kickstart public service careers, we're helping to nurture this cadre of people that will be competent and ethical drivers of change. Um, this organization started in 2009, and our founders started this um, really having seen firsthand the, the capacity gaps that existed when she lived and worked um, in the public sector in Liberia. And building upon that nearly decades of experience in Liberia, Emerging Public Leaders was launched in 2018 to really take this model, this public service fellowship model to new geographies. So we offer a two-year fellowship that really connects the, the dots between, you know, the talented young people that graduate from local universities and the opportunity uh, for entry-level positions in public service institutions. So uh, through the two years of the fellowship, the public service fellows receive training and mentorship and guidance to really kickstart their careers. We work in partnership with the governments in each of the countries to place them into critical civil service job roles. And at the end of the fellowship, they transition into full-time government employees. So it's, it's a real smart way of helping create this architecture of support for young people and or young talent that might ordinarily be lost to private sector opportunities. And it's also a way to help countries like Ghana and Liberia and beyond to fill the pipeline. Um, in Ghana, for example, you know, there's an aging civil service population. And this, our, our intervention is really helping to fill the pipeline for people who would be taking over from those who will soon be retiring. And our approach is really to support the priorities of government to really build partnerships of trust so that the priorities for each administration or each government can be fulfilled. So in Ghana, for example, public financial management has been a high priority, and we have a majority of our fellows working at the ministries of finance. We also have the opportunity to work to design, you know, interventions that really respond to their needs as well. So we're helping Africa to find those excellent um, public servants, and we're supporting them and nurturing the environment in which they can thrive. Hmm. How does your work, do you feel, with emerging public leaders, which of course is working on building a pipeline of public service talent, how does it intersect with your work with Le Leading Ladies Network, or if, if at all they intersect? Oh, they absolutely intersect. And, and here's how. I think for years, um, as I led Leading Ladies, we had the opportunity to train, to develop, to network and coach thousands of women's and women and girls. And I think the reality dawned on me around 2015 that we needed to do more, but part of what we needed to do was influence policy and regulations. That if, if you know, 
you can build confidence in people. You can give them skills to make them able to apply for a new job or thrive in a new job or build or scale a business. But if we weren't influencing the regulatory environment, which is set by government, there would always be a cap on how far women could rise. And so I knew that innately and was really contemplating that as a problem. And in 2016, you know, was awarded, I was awarded an Eisenhower Fellowship, which gave me the opportunity to take that issue and uh, meet with different organizations across the U.S. that were working in that space of supporting women's rise in political leadership or public service and really supporting, you know, organizations that um, were influencing policy. And it's actually during that you know, fellowship that I connected with the founder of Emerging Public Leaders, uh, Betsy Williams, and learned about her organization and the work that it was doing as well, and was immediately fascinated. I felt that, you know, I had connected with a vision that was important, and who knew that fast forward two years, she and I would be working together in this way. I really feel that it builds upon uh, the years of experience that I had as a social entrepreneur and really trying to galvanize support for um, the young people who will be writing the policies and enacting the laws and, you know, affecting the way that my life and my kids' lives will be directed in the future. So I, I definitely see this as building upon the work that I started through um, through Leading Ladies Network. My vision has remained the same, and it's very much that the vehicle has just changed. Yeah. How do you see it intersecting in terms of the emerging public leaders being more public service oriented and the leading ladies network? A lot of them, at least as far as I understand, are doing things that are more entrepreneurial and private sector oriented. I think that there's a body of learning that is useful in helping to direct the future um, of emerging public leaders. I think one of my learnings, you know, is there is an underrepresentation of women in public service leadership as well. And although our organization isn't focused exclusively on women, I definitely, you know, am interested in seeing how our work can change that. I think the other body of learning is around youth. And I think lastly, you know, I've always been interested just from a personal point of view, that all the work that I do needs to help change the lens through which people see Africa. And I'm interested in unlocking opportunities for women and youth. And these are often underrepresented categories of, of people um, when it comes to public service and also when it comes to business leadership. So I think in that regard, you know, I have this learning and this pulse of young people and women in general, which is definitely helping inform some of the choices that we make um, as our work unfolds in different countries through emerging public leaders. Oh, super interesting. Um, I'm really struck by your point that the qualities that a public service leader needs in the future are going to be different. What do you think they sh they need to evolve into, into becoming? Well, it's my opinion that a lot of uh, government institutions are more bureaucratic and authoritative and directive. But I think what we're finding is this shift and we're currently in the process of launching our work in Kenya. And it's been articulated so poignantly 
through our government partners there. There's a shift that needs to happen um, in terms of helping orient public servants of the future towards uh, putting the citizen at the center of their work and focusing on how to improve public service delivery through that lens. And I think that that's always been something that I've been hearing through the years that I've been doing this work. And that means that public servants of the future need to be a little more, um, you know, customer-centered. The curriculum that we're developing is also prioritizing uh, skills in data and analysis and use of technology. And I think in in most African countries, the government sector has been slower to adopt technology into how it deploys its services. So I think, you know, those are just some of the ways that we're trying to respond to what I think are the shifting needs of citizens and therefore the shifting ways that public servants need to deliver their work. Mm, Yeah, those are, those are all such great points. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting about you because you obviously are working to develop leaders and you're a leader yourself in doing so. And one thing that feels unique to your specific leadership style is that um, that you don't, it doesn't feel like you separate out your personal and professional selves. And you also encourage others to also just bring their full selves to the table when they are turning into leaders. Um, I'd love for you to speak more about how you think about that. You know, I'm learning that when you show up as yourself, that's when magic happens. And I've been on a journey as in my own personal life and in my, you know, professional life to just be more authentic in what I do and how I do it. And you're right, my leadership style tends to blur the lines uh, between what's personal and professional, partly because I think we bring all of ourselves to our leadership and then all of ourselves um, play a role in how we see the world and in how we react to what we're seeing. And I think as a leader, you know, I want to make sure that the quality of my decisions is flavored by an understanding of people's as a whole. So the people I work for or with, you know, I want to understand who they are as people, not just as employees and what they're producing. Because I think it's, you know, just as important, not um, what we do, but who we are. And I think just from a spiritual perspective, I tend to be a really spiritually um, in tune person. And I feel that there's just a lot of shared humanity that gets lost sometimes in our work and how we work because we don't pay attention to all of ourselves. We only pay attention to kind of the hands and the mind. So, you know, I do aspire through my leadership to give people permission to to bring more of themselves to work and to be authentic and in how they're presenting themselves. Um, And I've been on that journey to, you know, really kind of bring the best of me into everything that I'm doing. I enjoy mentoring. I enjoy having the opportunity to share the lessons I'm learning from my own unfolding journey. I try to be available to my colleagues at work to, to share, you know, on a personal level, not just on the professional. And I think that fosters trust and cohesion, and it really makes everything you do just a little more enjoyable. 
Yeah, I have definitely found that myself in my own in my own career. I'd love to also talk about. Um, I'm so fascinated by the idea of failure and how failure can help us grow and learn and become better leaders over time. Uh, what would you say is your best failure, the one that helped you actually do this to learn and grow and become the leader you are today? My best failure. You know, last year was such a difficult year for the world uh, in terms of COVID and the disruptions, both professionally and personally. And, you know, our organization went through some intense moments um, and not sure that we could keep our doors open, uh, you know, and we were not, we were far from where we needed to be in terms of raising the resources that would enable the work to continue. And um, I felt just so like personally responsible for the team and you know for the conti- the continued ability of the organization to do the work and um you know it was it was difficult and i felt very much like a failure last year that look um all of the revenue goals that we had were shot off and you know dis- because of this disruption and I'm pointing to that as one of my best failures for two reasons. I think one, it forced a reckoning in terms of just how I was approaching my work. And the reckoning was, it it helped me unpack and partly, you know, I was helped through this process through, through a coach that I worked with last year to see ways that I wasn't showing up as my authentic self in my work and to kind of change the the way I approached even the most important part of my job, which is fundraising. And the what resulted is more frank and open and vulnerable conversation with my board, with donors, with colleagues that I think have just taken all of these relationships to very positive new levels. So for example, yesterday, just yesterday, I was on a call with two of our donors who I think I left both of those conversations feeling that if this were a year ago, I would have come to this call so matter-of-factly, so professional, with slick presentation decks, et cetera, and would have missed the opportunity to be known and to know them and to be known by them. And I think that that is just so positive, but only derived after the hit of just not meeting any financial targets last year and having to own that and sit in that discomfort and say, you know what, I will just start showing up honestly as myself and tell it like it is and try to, you know, not hide my vulnerability as much as I felt like I was doing before. So I call that my best failure or, you know, most recent, at least in recent memory, because I'm beginning to see how, you know, showing up as myself has just opened new windows into how, 
you know, this work can be supported, how I can be supported, and it's deepening relationships that are so critical to moving this agenda forward. And I think that, you know, I, I, I like to say to other people that I mentor that things change when you change. But quite honestly, I was not taking my own medicine <laughs> for a long time. And I think, you know, just having to sit in the discomfort of knowing that I was failing as a leader to find the resources and to make the, the, the choices that would benefit my team and the organization as a whole forced me to, to dig deeper than I was digging at the time. Yeah, I love that story also because it shows how we never finish growing and we think we know all these lessons or you know them by, you've heard them before, but until you really live them, um, you don't fully understand the power of them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it also reinforced to me the importance of knowing, and I say this over and over to those who will let me, you know, share insights with them. You cannot be your best self by yourself. And I think that, you know, we all need help and we have to own that. And, you know, investing in some coaching last year through this moment that was so difficult for everyone professionally and personally was an important act of kindness to myself um, to really help me, you know, examine ways that I could show up a little more authentically than I had been. And I mentioned that because I think, you know, some of the learning that you have is in retrospect, but of course, some of that learning can be aided um, by reaching out for, for some specialized help. And I definitely saw the importance of that. You know, I feel like you touch on a couple of the qualities that uh, when I spoke to some of your colleagues and friends, they said how amazingly positive and also how resilient you are, especially after everything that you've been through, both professionally and personally. Um, I just love to know where this fountain of both positivity and resilience comes from. I think it comes from my parents and I think it comes from my faith. I think my parents, um, you know, my father passed away in 2004, but my mother is still living. And I think from a young age, they both really instilled in us this notion of roll up your sleeves and get on with it. <laughs> um, and then I think it also comes from our lived experience as, you know, immigrants living in America. You're not from here. You have the weird names, the weird accents, and just, you know, getting on with it in spite of everyone not accepting you, in spite of a system that you don't quite understand how to participate in. Um, but our parents were very much the get on with it kind. Um, and then I think our faith, you know, from a young age, you know, I'm a Christian and our family was a strong or is a strong Christian family. And those values of loving others and treating others with respect, but also recognizing that ultimately all that you experience can and will work together for your good does keep me grounded in a really you know, important way because there's been a lot of things that don't feel good. But I remind myself of that scripture. I believe it's in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 that says, and we know that all things work together for good for those that love God. And so I try and keep myself grounded with that for sure. Oh, that's so beautiful. 
you have so many things going right now. I'd love to know what's next for you. You know, what's next for me is I want to see emerging public leaders expand across Africa. Um, In just a few weeks, we're going to be launching in Kenya. So that will bring us to three countries so far, Liberia, Ghana, and Kenya. And I hope to expand our work across East and Southern Africa over the next five years. I want us to grow. I want to create a pan-African network of country-led programs that support the rise of young people into government service. So I feel in many ways we're just beginning. We brought on some great new partners that are enabling us to, to, to really expand our footprint and to deepen our impact. And, you know, what's next is to take us to the next chapter of growth. Um, I envisage three new countries in the next five years, and I'm, you know, really excited about the potential of this work, especially in a time like this. And I say that because I think COVID has brought to fore the importance of government. You know, you can't entrepreneur your way out of uh, out of poverty and it troubles me deeply that the story of global poverty is really a story about Africa and you know governments play an important role in delivering services to, to, to citizens and whereas in much of the developed world government plays more of a regulatory role in in and across Africa, government is playing a service delivery role. And so I really think it's important for us to get it right, that the right-minded people with the right skill set end up in these critical government uh, institutions to make decisions about everything. Um, When we think about vaccine distribution, for example, how governments have had to innovate in order to ensure that, you know, their populations are vaccinated, for example. And I'm glad that many of our fellows were on the forefront of that. In Ghana, for example, one of our fellows at Ministry of Health was the only one with the skill set that was needed to really track um, the 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 contact tracing, you know, he developed a framework for, you know, the contact tracing initiative at the Ministry of Health. And then soon was brought into kind of the command center because he was the only one with really the data analytic skill set to, you know, really help the senior leaders at the ministry make the decisions that were necessary in that critical moment. So I want more stories like that in more critical sectors like that across the continent, because we're seeing that it doesn't take a lot, but it does mean we have to be deliberate. Leadership doesn't happen in a vacuum. We've got to be deliberate about nurturing that next generation of public service talent, because it's important and the time is now. Yeah, very, very well said. So now we're going to move on to something a little fun our rapid fire round where I'm going to just ask you a few questions and give you, let's say about 30 seconds to answer each one. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so are you ready? (laughs) I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. So first, what are three words your friends would use to describe you? Ooh, um, spiritual, um, hard headed, (laughs) determined. I love it. Uh, what gives you the most energy? Oh, interacting with young people. They keep me, you know, focused and hopeful about the future. 
what is the most underrated place in Africa? Ooh, the hearts and minds of Africans. I think, you know, there's just so much talent that's underrated. And I, I would say it's not a geographical place. It's just, it's the minds and the hearts of, of Africans, particularly young Africans that have just so much, you know, so many great ideas and just need, you know, to unlock new opportunities or need investment to move to the next level. I'd say that's what's underrated. Oh, I love that, that it's not a geographical place, but just this place that we're just not really reaching. Mm-hmm. What's the hardest part about building something in Africa? Finding people of like-minded purpose and patient capital. Mm. And what's the best part about building something in Africa? Finding people of like-minded purpose and finding people who are ready to be patient, to invest with patience. You know, it's the best and the worst part of it, but they're there. People of like-minded purpose are there. You can find people to work with and you can find people to invest, but it's hard to find them. And I think that, you know, it's both the best and the worst parts about trying to build something here. Hmm. What advice would you give to your younger self? Don't waste too much time fretting about other people's opinions. Yeah, that's something that um, that I wish I had taken as well. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think so many young people need to hear that. Absolutely, especially in this Instagram age. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. I'm so glad that I didn't have to grow up with uh, social media just always there. Right. Um, finally, how can people best support you? I would love people to check out our website, emergingpublicleaders.org, follow our work, interact with our fellows in all of the countries in which we're in, and donate. You know, this work is important, and it takes a village to make this work. So please, that's the best way you can support me, by going on to our website and connecting with us, sign up for our newsletter, and stay involved and connected to, to this really important work. Thank you so much, Yawa, for being here today. I had so much fun getting to know you and learning about your journey and just everything that you're building on the continent. Thank you for all of your work. Thank you so much. This is Arabella Meyer, Editor-in-Chief of Driving Change. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please leave us a review and rate us. And if you'd like more, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about us, please visit us at drivingchange.org and follow us on social media at underscore driving change. Until the next time, this is Driving Change.